Hi, everyone. I'm a member of the downtown group in Springfield, Massachusetts. I want to thank the committee for inviting me to share this weekend with you. Uh, I don't say this too often, but I, I want to say that I think that this has been one of the warmest and closest conventions that I have attended. From the time I walked in here on Friday, there has been just such a cohesive quality to this group that I just felt like I, you know, I knew, knew everyone, knew everyone and belonged and didn't feel the least bit strange. And it's, um, it's just beautiful to be a part of this weekend. I think that probably one of the, the great privileges of, of being able to go to a convention once in a while, for me, is to see people from all walks of life come together. And I know somebody in the ladies' room, a lot of things go on in the ladies' room. <laughs> and somebody in there last night was saying, you know, gee, Friday seems so long ago. And, you know, that's true, really. You know, the difference in the faces this morning. You know, we walk in here Friday, we're tense, we're tired, we've raced to get here, we're through with a week's work. And then just to see it all just sort of slide away as we begin to relax and begin to share and feel what we have to give each other. Uh, it's just great. Just great. And I never see to be amazed and to have almost like mind-boggling feelings about being able to stand up here and look out at you and look at people of all different ages, from all different walks of life, all different jobs, all different family situations all different lengths of sobriety and to know that this same program works for all of us. I love that part. And it just, it's, to me it's just, uh, just mind-boggling. And it works for all of us and it produces the feelings in us that you heard John, John gave this whole talk in, in five minutes to summed up what happens to us in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I couldn't help but think last night as I listened to Al and as I heard Keith, as a matter of fact, on Friday night, thinking of the sameness of our, our words even. Al kept using the term, the uncomfortable feeling, and this is a term that I use all of the time. And we describe the, it's these feelings, really, that you and I have to share with each other. And when we get right down to it, what is life? It's the sum total, sum total of all of our feelings. Our feelings as we progress down into the hell of this illness, alcoholism. Our feelings as we hit that bottom at whatever level it might have occurred and our feelings as we begin to find new life, as we begin to find a joy in living in this fellowship. 
This is what we have to give to each other. And you know, I noticed the program also, the title of this session. You know, and I have some feelings and I say, you know, Margaret, what are you doing here? And yet again, the same things must happen to each and every one of us in this program. The same changes have to take place in our feelings as we progress in our recovery. And I have to know, for me, that to come from where I was 17 and a half, 18 years ago, to come from those feelings of despair and of loneliness and helplessness and inadequacy and bitterness and uncomfortableness with life to where I am today to where I am today where I can feel love for another human being if I had you know somebody said to me when I came into AA what is the thing you are most lacking in your life I wouldn't have been able to say it then, but I think that probably my prayer would have been, Lord, let me feel love. What a desperate love. I think that the people out there, you know, who go through life, and this was mentioned this weekend too, and they don't have any purpose. They have nothing in common with anyone. And they just sort of exist day in and day out. And they get up in the morning and they live for a day. And they don't know where they're going. There's no sense of direction. And I think how fortunate we are. How fortunate we are to have found this fellowship. And I know for me, without any doubt at all, that I, Margaret, never, never could have come from where I was to what I feel today under my own power. You know, in the fifth chapter it says, May we find him now. I wasn't really able to find him at that point when I came into the fellowship. It took me many, many years to begin to feel God in my life. And I don't want to ever lose this feeling. My childhood was a a mass of negative feelings. You know, I don't know much about the illness, alcoholism. But I do know that in my home, a house that looked like any other house on the street, there was something horrible happening. And I have to believe in my own heart 
But you and I don't ask to become alcoholics. But that we, who have alcoholic parents, and both of my parents were alcoholics, have had the greatest training in the world of how not to drink, how not to use alcohol. And so I have to believe that there's something about this illness that is really physical and is really that either a predisposition or a real chemical imbalance is inherited. Because I know there are many of you out there who suffered the same kinds of things that I did as a child. And you and I would not have chosen to drink this way. We would not have chosen to have alcohol due to us and due to those around us, the things that the same things that happen to us. You know, when I hear somebody in AA say, "I never hurt anyone," I never hurt anyone. I never hurt my kids. I have to get kind of sick inside, and I have to, you know, sort of utter a little prayer that that person will eventually see. I know what it feels like to live with alcoholic parents. And in no way, you know, do I feel that I didn't hurt my little girl. But you know, we can't see ourselves when we first come into this program. And when I first began to say a few words at an AA meeting, I remember saying, oh, I don't have much to say. You know, my drinking was just sort of, I didn't get falling down drunk, I wasn't arrested and all of these things. And I didn't think I had much to say. And then as I began to see me and see what I had done to almost kill a little girl, I thought, my God, you don't have anything you know, to share. My life was a miserable, miserable agony as a child. And since I've come into Alcoholics Anonymous, I know that I don't have to dwell in the past anymore. I had an obsession with my childhood for years. I used it as my excuse for not facing any, any problem in life, anything uncomfortable for me. I would use my childhood as an excuse to run away, run away into a bottle. And I learned in AA that I don't have to dwell in those days anymore. Because each morning that I get up, I have a new miniature to life to live. And I live in this day. And it's a fantastic gift. But I have to share with you the feelings I had as I endured things that were criminal. Things that were terrifying. I, ha I can remember coming home from school at the end of a school day and seeing my father's car outside that house, and I would be filled with a terror, an indescribable fear and terror of going in. But I but I just knew what was going to happen if I walked in that door. 
And yet, by the same token, I knew what would happen if I didn't go in the house. And so I would go in, and a little more hate would be born. And pretty soon the pain got so great that as a 12 or 13-year-old girl, I can remember on more than one occasion sitting up in a third-floor window of our home, sitting on the windowsill with one leg dangling out over the sill, looking down at a concrete walk, three flights below. And I can remember vividly trying to get the courage to make myself jump out of that window so that I could die. I was so ashamed and I was so scared and I was so full of hate and I was not, not, I was not crazy. But I didn't have the courage to, to jump. And so I did what many of us have done, and that is I pulled inside me. I didn't want to feel anymore. And I just sort of went into a cocoon. And the Freudians can do what they want with that, and they all mentioned the womb last night. And that's really what it was. I wanted to go back where I was safe. And not fear. And because I did this so constantly and just lived inside this little world of my own, this little dark world of non-feeling, I didn't develop like other kids. I didn't participate in school. I didn't accomplish. I didn't grow emotionally. I was just there. And then finally, I had an opportunity to leave that home. I was to be sent to college at my mother's alma mater, which was some 450, 500 miles away from where I had been born. And I, I remember feeling some, some of the first positive feelings I'd had in a long time. I thought, boy, I'm going to be able to live. Because even at that age, I guess I recognized that I wasn't living. And so, I got on a train. And that sort of dates me, because in those days, we got on a train. And it was about 11 hours away. And it was during a certain war. And there was a lot of conviviality on that train. There were a lot of servicemen. And I was ready to live. And of course, they had a, a lot of bottles. And I was offered some drinks. And I have to say that I showed up 11 hours later at that school, and I was slightly bombed. 
And I had come into contact, you see, with alcohol for me. And how fast we forget. Or how unable we are to see what alcohol does. Because in no way did I think that I was drinking like the, the grown-up, drunk adult that I had been with. I, of course, immediately gravitated to the drinkers. And within a matter of a couple of weeks, I was with a really high-flying drinking crowd. And for the first time, I guess, in my life, I began to get a little feeling of sameness to other people. I think I had always used something in the line of a measuring stick. I had always held it against me. And I don't care how tall I was physically. On that measuring stick, I was little. And I would hold that measuring stick against you. And you were way up there. I was never as good as, I never knew as much, I never could express myself as well as, and these feelings had become so ingrained in me that I, I was able to find relief from them in a bottle of alcohol. Those feelings, by the way, are so ingrained in us that I think we go through our entire life. And unless we are constantly vigilant, unless we're constantly practicing the principles of this program in our lives, we revert to those feelings of insecurity and unworthiness and I don't deserve. We revert to them very rapidly. I used to hate those words constantly, vigilant. You know, they had a negative ring to me. And I know today what they mean. And for a little while I found relief in a bottle of alcohol. That's exactly what it did for me. It was a relief. It allowed me to feel like other people. And I don't care if you're new in this program, if you at any time are feeling that there is relief for you in a drink of alcohol, you're going to have trouble getting well. It was only when I began to know that for me there would never be relief that I began to get better inside. I began to do many things in that school, and since my chauffeurs to the Washington airport wanted to get out of here on time, I won't go into the detail. Suffice it to say that, that the drinking increased rapidly. I began to do things that women in those days did not do on college campuses. I began to use the windows as entrances in the middle of the night. And of course, finally, yeah, and it wasn't for any great big romantic interlude either, it was because I couldn't stand to leave the bar until the bar closed. And of course, finally, I got caught. And there came a day when I was dragged before the dean, and that's just about what it was. And that dean looked like I imagined deans to look. 
And she said, Margaret, why are you doing these things? And I knew that I had to have a good answer. And all the conning and the manipulativeness that you and I come to know as active alcoholics just sort of surfaced in me. It welled up. And I'll have to say to you, I didn't tell any outright lies. But what I did do was to pull all that story of my childhood, all of that story I had pushed down inside me because it was so bad and I felt so guilty and so ashamed that I didn't want to talk about it to anyone. And I pulled it out and I told her. And she looked at me and she said, Margaret, isn't it wonderful if you have turned out this well? (laughs) And you know, I never had to look for another excuse for my drinking. There it was, given to me on a silver platter. And I crawled into a bottle and this dean, by the way, became my advocate. Poor girl. And I'll have to say that finally, I think really, they gave me a diploma just to get me out of there. <laughs> and I began to grace the employment world with my presence. And I went from job to job and city to city, as we do. Always with the feeling, you know, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm famous last words, I'm going to start over again. Oh, those words, I've said them so many times. And I would go from job to job. And somehow or other my alcohol and the problems that alcohol was creating for me came right along. And finally, Finally, I said, I've got to do something to settle down. And so I found a man. I found a man and decided to get married to this very fine, upstanding citizen. And I said, this will make it all different. It certainly did. Because this fellow who had drank drink for drink with me when we were going together suddenly became a one-drink man. And he'd come home from work, and he'd want his dinner. And I couldn't live this way. For the first time, I had some responsibilities that I really had to face with another human being. And I was unable to cope. And you know, we all the time talk about whether alcoholism is worse for a woman than it is for a man. And in some respects, I I really believe that, that we women have stronger feelings of guilt than a man because you men place us on such a pedestal. We must be the wives and mothers. You know, it may be funny when you fall off a bar stool, but when we fall off a bar stool, we are tense. And it may be unspoken at times, but it's there. And so more and more, I found myself forced into a corner of of guilt. Guilt for the bad things I was doing. 
guilt for the fact that I couldn't get up and, and do a piece of housework in the morning without having a little drink. I'll just have one. And I rapidly found that I had to begin hiding my alcohol. I, had, I was forced into a corner, began to have to take the money from the food money, began to have to water the bottle, began to have to do all of the things that we alcoholic housewives have to do. I did a lot of my drinking in the bathroom. Doesn't everyone go in the bathroom for a social drink? You know, there are so many signposts of our alcoholism if we only were able to see them. But our physical and emotional need to keep pouring alcohol into our system to go on living and facing a day is so great that we simply can't see beyond the next drink. And that's what happened to me. I was existing in a vacuum. A vacuum of guilt. I shunted away from anyone that didn't drink. I can remember going to visit people with my husband and, you know, say, oh, God, we've got to bring a bottle with us. You know, because after all, those people are newly married and, and working and they don't have too much money and, you know, it's not fair for us to go drink their liquor. I was just afraid they didn't have enough. You've all done it. I'd go out to the car to get ready to go someplace with my husband. And my Lord, how often I had to go to the bathroom. How often I had to run in that house and say, hey, I, you know, I got, I'll be right back. Gotta go. And I'd go in and I'd drink straight out of that bottle. And so many times I'd drink so fast trying to get enough in me. Enough in me so I could feel normal. And obviously it would come up and I'd have to go, I couldn't go out without getting another something into me. This is the way life went. And I was so all alone. All, you know, many, many things happened during that period that were funny on the surface. You know, we women do a lot of entertaining, we women alcoholics. We have to entertain because we have to maneuver the occasions for us to have parties and create drinking times, drinking occasions. And a lot of these were funny on the surface, but they were funny because down deep inside of me there was a panic and there was a fear and it was growing every day. So finally, it came time for me to make, you know, I had to go one way or the other. And I thought, if we had a child, everything would be all right. There it is. There's the solution. And I did the only that I could under the circumstances since God hadn't given me a child of my own. And that was I made the noble gesture of offering us as foster parents. And a little girl came to live in our home. A little three-year-old girl with long, blonde hair, and big brown eyes. And I had to drink an extra amount that day to face this arrival. But you know, as loaded as I was, I can still remember the fear in that little girl. 
Um, I didn't see it then. I saw it, but it didn't register. She was shaking and she was laughing nervously. And she carried a little brown paper bag with her. That was it. The sum total of her belongings. And I can remember opening that bag, and there were only two or three items of clothing in it, and one of those items was a little jersey nighty that infants wear. And it was all threadbare, all full of holes, and this thing had been allowed to stretch with her body as she grew. And I remember holding that up to the light that night, and I said, Can you imagine? In totally righteous indignation, can you imagine anyone treating a child that way? I had kept that lady. I don't know why. I kept, I know why I kept it after I came into AA. Because the things that happened, and the things that I did to that little girl, were so much worse than any holy matter. And the momentum of the alcoholism began to, to increase. The merry-go-round was going faster and faster, and there just was no way for me to get off it. So you would think, having been brought up in the home I had been born into, that I would have, you know, recognized this little girl's needs. And you would think that I would have been able to open my eyes, you know, and hold her. And give to her the thing that she needed. I should have recognized what she needed. Because this little girl had been taken away from alcohol parents. But I didn't have anything to give. I had nothing to give. I can remember on occasion a slight twinge of wanting to be able to pick her up. But I couldn't make myself do it. I was inside, inside that, that cocoon. And each day, you know, began to go faster and faster. A day full of guilt. The day, the same day repeated over and over and over again doing horrible things, rejecting, striking, doing everything to this little girl because I couldn't stand me and feeling so horribly guilty that there was only one way to get relief and that was to have another drink. I had withdrawn from everybody, everybody. I had withdrawn from whatever image of God I had other than to blame him for what he was doing to me. And I began to have other symptoms that some of you have felt. I began to, to be with people in the room, mostly people only. And all of a sudden I feel this desire to strike out that I think we heard Keith mention the other night. This man was And I would be full of panic. 
And it got so bad. It got so bad. That when my little girl would come into the kitchen, if I happened, she'd be peeling potatoes. Or using a paring knife. I would have to just throw that knife on the counter. That's how bad it got. I never used to talk about that. But one day, somehow, I mentioned it. And I think five people from the group that I was speaking at came up and said, My God, I thought it never happened to anyone else. It happened. It's part of the progression of alcoholism. I would get up in the morning every morning and hate life and I'd say my God and I wish I was dead and I would then go for my regular morning appointment with that toilet bowl that Keith mentioned that we all knew so well I wish to God there had been a telephone number written on mine years before I got to AA and then I would make it to the kitchen to the liquor cabinet and I would want to walk by it. But I'd say just one. Just one. And you know, if you're new in this program, I think you can learn from us that one of the things we can't ever do is to argue with ourselves as to whether or not we'll take a drink. Because I want to tell you something. For me, it was one argument that I never won. Now, I'll argue with you about at the drop of a hat about anything you care to discuss. But I will never argue about whether I can have just one drink. And I've had that drink. And I would begin to get breakfast on the table and get my little girl ready for school. Now, this little girl with the long blonde pony uh, hair used to wear it in a ponytail. And, of course, she was too young to fix it. And so it fell to me to comb and brush her hair. Each one of us has a bottom beyond which we cannot go. And for me, my bottom is represented by a little girl's ponytail. Because every morning I would be there with the common brush, and I'd be, you know, starting the routine. And all of a sudden, that horrible, horrible desire to strike out would come over me. And I just was panicked. Because, you know, down deep, I didn't want to hurt her. And I would, in order to protect her from, my, from me, from the monster, I would push her away from me. And I'd get up and I'd pace around that dining room and I'd be shaking my hands and I'd be, you know, doing anything to try to relax myself. And then I'd sit down and again I'd start to brush or comb. Sick. 
And I heard somebody speak in AA one time, and they said that at the, that point where we hate ourselves so much, we have reached a remarkable state of good health for an alcoholic. And I believe it. I had to hate me. I had to hate me and hurt to the point where I could not continue. You know, although I couldn't feel God in my life for a long time after I came into this program, I knew right from the beginning that what happened to me was a miracle. Because I wouldn't have had the courage to call AA. And yet, somehow or other, at that particular time in my life, a merciful God intervened. And he placed in my path sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I looked at them in this gathering of people. These people who were talking about their alcoholism and they were dancing and they were happy and they were having a ball sober. And I thought they were faking, really faking, but I watched them. Oh, how I watched them. Don't think people aren't watching us. And thank God that these sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous were willing to share their sobriety with a total stranger. Thank God that they understood the anonymity tradition. I'm so grateful that they knew when we talk about anonymity in AA, we mean that we shouldn't break our anonymity at the level of press, radio, and TV, or film. And that it has nothing to do with our breaking our anonymity on a private level, or you to me, or me to you. Thank God they understood this, because I wouldn't be alive today had they not. And they got me to a meeting, a meeting which was to change my life. I was desperate, I was sick, I was afraid, I was alone, I was a zombie. And I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was right. I was right for what you had here. I absorbed, you know, these are the words that we say so much as what there is in this room. There is something that passes one from another to another. And that something, that feeling, that vitality, that something about living and life and just began to go into my soul. And I can remember that first meeting that night, one thing about it. And that is the speaker said, I've been sober two months. And I said, two months? I could never do that. And that was 17 and a half years ago. 17 and a half years of learning to live 
And it's been a beautiful 17 and a half years. O.A. gave me a sponsor. This person made me their special concern, their special project. And that person was just right for me. He was a janitor. He was 275 or 50 pounds of just bubbling, bubbling happiness with his sobriety. And somehow or other, you know, they say, look for the, look, look at the eyes, look at the eyes. Somehow or other, there was a comfortableness about this man that I had to have somehow. And I latched on to him, or he latched on to me, and I don't know what's happened, but it isn't important how these things happen in my way. It's important that he understood that he had to give away his sobriety to people. That's what's important. And, you know, if, we, if you would ask me, you know, if there's anything about the future of Alcoholics Anonymous that worries me, I would have to say there's one concern I have, one main concern. And that's what are you and I doing about sponsorship? What are you and I doing to to continue this change? What are you and I doing to help the newcomers that walk in the doors of AA know that sponsorship is part of recovery? You know, people say, oh, you know, they don't need sponsors anymore. It's not the same certainly is the same. I didn't know I needed a sponsor when I walked in LA. It isn't what you look like on the outside. We're having so many people who, who come in from, from the program, the treatment program. And I think they're great. I don't care how people get here as long as they get here and you and I are ready to give them this program when they walk in the door. They might think they know a lot about alcoholism, but they don't know much about living sober. And that's what you and I have to give to each other. And the sponsor was so aware of where I was at, and I think this is the way we have to talk to newcomers, where they're at. He was so aware of the fact that he was talking to one big hulk of a woman who had never learned to grow up, who had never learned to live. Not one day did I know how to live in a mature, responsible way. And he started, and I don't know what it is, Al mentioned this business of the call every day. I guess he stood too. The call every day. Starting my day with a contact with my sponsor. And he began to say things like, hey, you get out of the morning, you get in the morning and you take a minute, lady. The great grateful for your sobriety today. And that word, grateful. Thank God he said that to me and kept on saying it to me. He talked about stopping after every little thing I did in the house and expressing gratitude. You're not going to want to give away something if you're grateful for it. Gratitude. 
You know, it's funny, when I'm feeling grateful, and I do 99 and 9 tenths percent of the time, it's an interesting thing that I'm just all open. I'm all open for good things to happen to me. And when I forget to feel grateful, I'm just all closed up again. <laughs> Nothing good happens. And this man would help me to learn how to live, to learn how to do dishes sober, to learn how to cook a meal sober, to learn how to be able to say to my daughter early in the morning before my coffee, you know, we won't make that decision right now, ask me later, and not feel guilty about it. He believes that living, and, and I agree with this today, that living is made up of little things, the sum total of all of the little things. I had always thought in a grandiose kind of fantasy way, and it's the little things that are important in our life. He talks about attitudes. And I'm sure most of you have heard this, but I think it's so significant for we women alcoholics to think of the change in attitudes that we undergo and to think of how it was with a basket of ironing before we came into AA. My God, we always had a basket of ironing hiding away somewhere. And after we come into AA, we're not behind in our ironing anymore. We're just a little ahead in our washing. You know, and if we can feel that way about everything that happens, that's the kind of attitude we need to work to develop. What a great way to live. And I began to get physically sober, you know, just barely physically sober. And this sponsor of mine would say, hey, um, we'd be at a meeting. Uh, and he'd say, hey, that guy over there coming in the door, that gal, they're newer than you are. Go over and say hello. And I would look at him like he had flipped his lid. Me? He made me. And I use that term advisedly. He made me give away my sobriety. And I'm so grateful that he did. I got physically sober. I began to get happy sober. I began to realize that I could do anything that I used to do where I had to drink to do it. I could do the same thing sober. I can remember going to my first dance sober. And doing a hula hula in the middle of the floor without anything to drink. And I didn't know how to do a hula either. <laughs> and it was great. It was great. And I got tremendously happy and bubbly and God, life was good. And I was taking, I was taking everything you people wanted to give to me. And I took and I took and I took. And I had been sober probably for a period of Oh, year, year and a half. And something happened to change the course of my 
my recovery. And that was a day in which I had a golf date with a woman who lived in the apartment block where my sponsor was a janitor. And as I went to pick her up to go play golf in the morning, I drove up, got out of the car, and as I drove up, I had seen my, my sponsor coming up the street, just sort of rambling and shuffling along. And he had his dungarees on, and he had his holy sneakers on. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all those old false values, the false pride, the old ego, the everything that was really Margaret came out. And I pretended I didn't see this beautiful man. So I went to the golf course that day, and it was awful, but it was wonderful for me. Because on that day, a little crap began to come in that cocoon of self and selfishness. And on that day, I began to feel a little bit of what it means when we say we love each other. And for the first time in my life, I think I knew what it was to love another human being as much as myself. And I began to know what they meant in this program, although I couldn't put it into words at that time. And I knew what they meant when they said emotional recovery. And I knew what it, they meant when they said that we have a respon- we might not have a responsibility for our illness or for getting here, but we sure as hell have got a responsibility for our recovery. And I went back to that apartment block that night, driving the woman home, dropping her off. And as I dropped her off, my sponsor was in exactly the same spot he had been in that morning. And of course, I jumped out of the car and I ran up to him and I, you know, hi, and introduced him to the lady who he probably already knew. And he knew. And he knew. But it was the beginning. That was the day that I really got into Alcoholics Anonymous. That was the day when I came, you know, got into the center of, we can't stay on the edge of something, we're going to fall off. And I began to do something in a very feeble way with the steps of this program. And you know, it's a wonderful thing. But these steps work for each and every one of us even as we misunderstand them, they work if we are trying to work them. Because I didn't understand the steps, but I began to try to use them. I began to want to make amends. I began, I took a very formal third step, you know, very formal, give my life to God kind of thing began to take an inventory of myself as I could see me at that time. began to want to make amends. I even began to establish a relationship with these parents, you know, with that, all of the bitterness still hidden down deep in me somewhere. I began to try to make amends, and I would drive 
620 miles and my sick, sick mother, I would go to kiss her and she'd turn her cheek because she didn't know how to love. She was so sick. And life became very beautiful. And I don't know what time it is. I wish I could see my watch. Life became very beautiful. And, um, you know, it's great. I had loads of pigeons. I was, you know, I was running all over, uh, years past. Years past sober, years past. Oh, exciting. Living, feeling, not wasting one day, making up for the days that, you know, I'd just gone down the drain. And, uh, it was great. Was great, and I began to become Mrs. AA in a little, you know, area. <clears throat> That's an awfully difficult role to play, too. A tremendous amount of responsibility, and for everybody's life and everybody's decisions. And uh, began to talk about they down in New York, of course. I was a great one for that, and then, you know, but I was happy. Until gradually, I became too busy to do the things that I needed to do for me. As simple as that, one sentence. And the feelings began to change. Now, it's all right for us perhaps to wake up with sweat, you know, on the upper lip and then feel there and there's nothing there, you know, when we're drinking. And it might be all right for us to feel uh, all of this fear when we're drinking. But if we're operating these principles in our lives, if they are an integral part of us, there's something wrong. And it's an interesting thing, you know. It takes us a long time to get into the steps and to get to that beautiful 12th step. But there comes a time if we don't continue to actively work at these steps, there comes a time when we become start sliding down them one by one. And that's what happened to me. I forgot to practice these principles in my affairs. And I went backwards down the steps. And I was the big eye again. And I was in pain. And I came to know, finally, as I was clearing, and this, by the way, was after I'd been sober for something like eight years, I began to know the pain of just sort of hanging on to that first step, because that's about all I had left in terms of quality in my life, just hanging on to the first step. And there I was, after eight years of sobriety. And I knew I had, I came to know what we mean in AA when we talk about interdependency. And I described it so well last night. I love that word. It's my responsibility for you and your responsibility for me. When we talk about helping the alcoholic who still suffers, we're not just talking about the newcomer who walks in the door. 
And it's so important that we be aware of this. And you know who was aware of it for me? Was a pigeon of mine. A newcomer was aware of it. And I am so grateful. So grateful. You know, we're hard nuts to crack and we think we've got all the answers. But if you take a look at us, we can have these these smiles plastered over our face and you come on and say, how are you? I say, oh, I'm great, great, you know. But the eyes tell the story. The eyes show it. And this newcomer looked at me. She knew. She knew I was dying inside. This is an inside illness. You better believe it. And she knew I was sick inside. And finally one day she handed me a poem. And I'm not going to go through that poem with you today. But it had to do with I wear a thousand masks. Don't believe what you see because I wear a thousand masks and none of them are me. And I thought that whippersnapper. And there were verse and verse and verses of this. But by the grace of God, I began to do some thinking. And I began to search for that which was missing in my life. And that which was missing was the spiritual change that had to take place. Had to take place. And I said that the only way that we're going to solve our problem of alcoholism is through spiritual means. And if you knew that word spiritual can mean what it means to you at this given moment, as long as it involves a rearrangement of values in our lives. But for me, at that point in my sobriety, I came to know that I, Margaret, really and truly was powerless. You see, I went back and I read the directions that we had in this program, and I started with that first step. And I knew that I was powerless. I, Margaret, was powerless. And I got to that second step. And because I had been able to empty out me from me and was an empty shell, I was really ready this time, really ready to have some power fill that cavity. And I was really then ready for the third step. And it wasn't any dramatic thing that time. And it's an ongoing step in my daily program. Turning my will and my life over to a God who I thought was way out there. I didn't just believe in God. I knew there was a God. But I didn't feel him. I did not feel him. And that God that was way out there, a transcendent God, had to become an imminent God inside me. And had to be with me. And, be, and let me, I had to feel him with me all the time. And that's the beginning of real beautiful living, really beautiful living. 
I feel so close, so close to that power. My inventory has even changed today. You know, what was a, a, a character defect for me when I first came into this program? It's different from what the, my character defects are today. If I feel fear, and I have felt some fear this weekend, I'm showing, I believe, a lack of faith in God. So that my inventory changes as I am able through this program to see more of me. And what we are able to do with ourselves in terms of growth and in terms of of feeling more deeply this beautiful experience of living is tremendous if we will continue to work the steps. There's a good article in the Grapevine, in the Grapevine I think either this month or last month, uh, that talks about a step group. And it isn't a question of did you take the step. It's a question of what step are you on now. And that's what this program is. So many things have happened in my life since I began to feel a power in it that I just can't describe to you. If your sponsor says to you, you know, just stay sober, just stay sober, and anything can happen, you better believe him. You better believe him. I have been given so many privileges in this life. The privilege that you and Alcoholics Anonymous have given me right now to act as a trusted servant for you on the Board of Trustees is, is, is just beautiful. To feel a responsibility, to know what we mean when we talk about it, our common welfare must come first. That first tradition is Greek to me. What do you mean our common welfare must come first and that my personal recovery depended on AA unity? I know what it means today. I know how important it is that we up in Springfield, Massachusetts, don't begin to change a word or two here or there. And you think this is, it can't happen? A suggestion came into the Board of Trustees just recently that suggested that we change the first word of Chapter 5, really, and change it to never. It's not important what the reasoning is. It's important that you and I be aware of the fact that we can't begin to tinker around with this program in Florida and Spencer and Massachusetts here, out in California, because we will gradually dilute and divert ourselves from our primary purpose. Tremendous responsibility, and I want to thank you for it. The feeling of love that is so beautiful and so precious to us as we grow in this program is just, as Keith would say, fantastic. And oh, is it fantastic. As I came along in my sobriety and, and began to be able to trust other people 
began to be able to feel love. I began to want to make up to this little girl that I'd hurt so much. And I began to say those strange words, you know, I love you. And she didn't want to hear them. She didn't want to hear them. She turned me right off, and I don't blame her. And I kept trying and trying to reach her. And I was so discouraged. And then, finally, my sponsor said to me, Margaret, you know, why don't you, you know, just don't say things to her. Why don't you touch her? Why don't you feel her? You know, touch her. Put your arm around her shoulders. I began to do that. She wasn't buying that either. And she sort of shoved me away, you know. Shoved me away. But I kept trying because you people were giving me the courage to give away the thing you had given to me. And then finally, very, very gradually, she began to be able to feel something too. And she began to, to want to touch me too. And you know how I knew that? Because she might be doing something uh, anywhere, let's say at the kitchen sink or something, and I would walk by, and she'd reach out her foot and trip me. <laughs> and it was just beautiful. It was just beautiful, and my arm got black and blue from the rabbit punches. You know, one of my pigeons recently said, oh, I wish my daughter would stop calling me Ma. I think that's terrible. Good God, I would have loved to. My kid calls me Ma all the time, and I think it's perfect. I don't care what she calls me. And then finally, finally, she was able to trust. And she, I had been away for the weekend, and I drove up in the driveway and started coming in the house, and the screen door burst open, and she burst out and just ran and threw her arms around me, and and the whole thing, the dam burst, and she just, I know I missed you, I love you, and kissed me. Kissed me for the first time, voluntarily kissed me. And right there, it was all worth it. All worth it. This program is beautiful. This weekend's been beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. I feel like I'm on cloud nine, you know, this pink cloud. And by the way, if you're new, a new sponsor or somebody says, you know, be careful of pink cloud. You know, I don't get stuck too much on a pink cloud. You know, because you're going to have to fall off. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Uh, I believe, you know, pink clouds, we're always going to have pink clouds. We're going to have pink clouds over and over and over again. We might fall off them momentarily. We've been having a big argument this weekend about whether you need pain to grow in this program. I believe you do. I believe that I had to have pain to grow. 
But I know that after each period of pain where I've gotten so uncomfortable again with me that I had to do something about it, there is a pink cloud waiting that is going to be just magnificent. And you know, I feel like I'm on a mountaintop this weekend, as I do at these AA conventions. And I feel very much the presence of God in this room. I'm so very grateful to be able to feel God in you. Beautiful. And I know that although you and I can't stay right up at the top of this mountain right now, we're going to go back into the plain valley of a workaday life. We still can bring the feeling that we have in this room with us. We can bring them with us inside of us. And we can give these feelings to all of those around us. Because it's what we are. What we are. Inside. And I feel so full inside. And I want to thank you all for having me with you.